Welcome to A Time of Monsters. This is a podcast about our descent to barbarism and the radical left struggle against it. I'm Aaron. Today, our guest is Sean K.B., co-host of The Antifada. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx wrote, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. But what does this mean? Simply put, the material basis of all society is defined by how people interact with nature in order to produce things. This ever-changing process creates new needs, modes of economic production, and social relations. Marx also believed that political, legal, and cultural institutions arose from, but also reacted on, how we organize ourselves to make them. His attempt at understanding history by analyzing underlying structures came to be known as historical materialism. Capitalism, however, has obscured this history from the working class engendering hyper-individualism and alienation in laborers throughout the world. As we slide into barbarism and ecological collapse, reclaiming this history is critical if we ever hope to create a better future. In this episode, Sean and I take a deep dive into historical materialism, which, as British Marxist Perry Anderson said, gives us the means with which to exercise a real, popular self-determination for the first time in history. If you like this interview and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash adampot and become a patron for exclusive content, including weekly news updates. All right, here's Sean KB. Enjoy. This is the first episode. Uh, I'm not usually going to do introductions like this. But um, I kind of wanted to talk with you, Sean, a little bit about why I want to start this and kind of get your feedback, because I feel like as communists, this is something that's just fell at the nitty gritty, you know, to your bone. You kind of feel this way about the world. And um, I ever since I was a kid, I was obsessed with uh, dystopian and apocalyptic books and movies and shit. And um, I've always kind of felt that I guess the seeds of destruction were within our society, you know. And when I became uh, a communist, a Marxist, I found out that that was actually true, you know? It's objectively true. <laughs> it's objectively true, right? So uh, I want to start out by just talking about historical materialism with you. And as you are a dedicated Marxist, one who actually reads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. rare skill to have these days, but I'm <laughs> fortunate to... Uh, not, not even just read individually, but uh, have a lot of good people who I, I study deeply with for many, many years and like outside reading groups and stuff like that. So I'm fortunate to really have such a good group of, you know, a good collective around me who's been really good about learning together. And I, I do what I can. Yeah. And I mean, that's why, like, I wanted to have you on, man. And, you know, you're going to be the first person to have on because listening to your show, The Antifada and, you know, of course, Chapo, but um. Other podcasts like Revolutionary Left Radio. Friends of the show, yeah. Yeah, Friends of the Show, hopefully soon. Uh, Trill Billy's definitely Friends of the Show. I uh, had this sort of community of people that I didn't even know, but that felt like my friends, but also like kind of teachers, you know, or just comrades, right? Not even necessarily teachers, but people I could learn with. And, um, you know, I figured, yeah, you would be one of the best people to have <laughs> on first, man, to, to kind of have that dynamic with. So um, I guess this is the best way to start off is... You can view history in several different ways, right? We're going to talk about the correct way you should view history. I would say the most advantageous to any goal of building like a socialist communist society. But uh, talk about some theories of history that people are misled to believe are true. I, uh, I did teach for some years uh, before I got into the trades myself. I taught U.S. history and Chinese history to um, apprentices in the building trades who were, unfortunately for them, forced to uh, sit through lectures and read history and talk about history. And I think 
maybe the greatest, the thing that I ran into the most often was the inability with the general sort of historical knowledge we have floating around from high school or the history channel or what our parents and relatives tell us about what happened in the past is a deep inability to understand things, to understand history, to understand society and the world as, as a non-individual choice. I guess it's mm-hmm. to say like to understand history as a series of structures, as a series of, series of, uh, series of conditions that people arise in, uh, that they uh, swim in like it's water and they're a fish, uh, that is really, really hard for people to see outside of themselves. And so mm-hmm. I think oftentimes with the history you get kind of in a popular sense in this society. It's, of course, that famous great man theory of history we've all heard about. Yeah. Uh, and a, a succession of um, brilliant individuals, men or today they could be women as well, who have been the real um, drivers and the real wellsprings of not just history and society, but societal change. Mm. So, of course, a history of the Civil War would be perfect for that because how many books do we have about uh, Abraham Lincoln and his trials and travails and how he as this figure sat at this real crux, this linchpin of history. Mm. I mean, I don't want to put too strong a point on it because there is, a, there is a place for the great man theory of history, right? But the place is at a different level of, of abstraction from what is valuable for us and for, for what we need to learn about history. So it's not to say that Lincoln wasn't important. It's only to say that those structures in the history, that subterranean tumult yeah. that's going on in the economy, that's going on in society, is uh, way more important of a driver than, uh, than just great men. Or, or the other, um, I think, common way of looking at history is a uh, procession of ideas. Yeah. Right? It's sort of idealist history that would uh, you know, talk about, say, ancient Greece came up with the idea of democracy, and then looking at history and how uh, there was this sort of progressive unfolding of democracy through the world until it got to like the United States, which is the greatest mm. example of democracy. These are the sorts of history that we get normally in our everyday lives. And I think it's, it's, it's insufficient. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was thinking while you were talking about the great man theory, you know, if you were to, if you had never been to the United States before, let's say you had never been to like the planet earth before, right? I wish. heard this example used before, right? I fucking wish, right? <laughs> Hopefully not soon, inshallah, yo. Let the alien comrades come, for real. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but like, I was thinking, man, if you were an alien and you came to Washington, D.C. and you saw these monuments, right? If you saw, like, the Lincoln, you know, monument and, like, the Statue of Lincoln and all that shit, yo, you would think that, you know, our ideals, our culture, and the way we view history has been channeled through, like, these great individuals, right? These courageous individuals who were know, brave enough to stand up against the tide of history and shape it, part that shit like Moses part in the Red Seas type of shit, you know? Right. But like, that's, that's, that's not, obviously, as you've like, like indicated, right? That's not the case. Like there's a whole like untold masses, like the rhythm, the subterranean, that's a perfect adjective for it, right? Um, Forces at work. But there's also like another kind of theory, right? That is more depressing. And we see this from like conservatives, especially. And this is like, they're like, nothing ever really changes mm. you know that like uh there's the there's i've even repeated this as a leftist right but uh supposedly attributed to mark twain that history doesn't necessarily repeat itself but rhymes right even that is untrue from marxist analysis can you explain why yeah the the way that uh conservative and even often uh liberal uh intellectuals if you can call them that want to understand history another way is is to try to look at this sort of abstract, uh, ahistorical, transhistorical human nature, such as it is, mm. that uh, the best we can ever do is try to constrain the, the bad, uh, the bad parts of human beings are are like our competitiveness, our greed, and our violence, which they argue is like essential to our nature, mm. um, by forming imperfect but important um, institutions like democracy, like the free market. And that these institutions arise as a reflection of something that's always true about human beings, of this human nature. That's a very, first of all, I think, wrong way of looking (laughs) at how people live in society. And it's also a very ahistorical one, because what they point to as human nature is a form of interaction, is a type of social being, is a mode of production, essentially, that's only been around for two, three hundred years. They want to take this 
conception of humanity and, and humans, and they want to thrust it back into the misty uh, trenches of time, whatever you want to say. And um, you see this with the attempt to do economic histories, which are already kind of bullshit, do like economic history of cavemen, where they try to say how much like an axe, a stone axe would have cost for this society. Yeah. And try to do like a marginal comparison of different, you know, it, it, it's completely fucking it's tens of thousands of years of inflation, right? Yeah. <laughs> yo, yo, you know, you just like what you just said, man, reminded me because you know I'm on Twitter a lot and uh I had posted Oh me too. <laughs> I know, comrade, yo, shit post <laughs> man, for real posting boys. We yeah. share that burden that burden together. <laughs> not many would, not many would. <laughs> but uh, I saw you know, I made this tweet about um as an aside, but it's related though, about how I wish that leftists were better about talking um to Christians about our ideas, right? Mm. But that's besides the point. One of the comments I got, though, is the main kind of crooks of what I'm getting at with this person said that when they think of Christianity, they think of capitalism, right? They mm. think of like two together. And like people rightfully commented that, yo, dude, like Christianity predates capitalism oh, by yeah. like thousands of years, right? That's right. So like, yeah. So again, it's like this conception that there is a fixed nature that people have, that people are naturally greedy, which is, you can be, you don't have to be an anthropologist to see that like human beings lived in a cooperative sort of way, right? For tens of thousands of years, when resources were scarce, tribes worked together, right? So they could get those resources. And when resources were more abundant, you know, you had more like kind of skirmishes and conflicts and whatnot. All right. So um, th thank you for clearing that up, man. Cause, uh, I think for any person listening to this, um, that has been in an American school, uh, public school, especially, right? Even at the higher levels, community college or college, it's um, it's really frustrating, right? When you have to reconcile the views that you have with the history that you're being taught, right? Every fucking day. Yeah, there's different ways of teaching history, right? There are similarities, like you said, between class societies that existed a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ago with what we have today. You can compare those things because they're two different mm. types of class societies. But I've found often what's great about history when I learn it or I have the opportunity to talk about it with other people is how frankly bizarre human life and society was at different times in different places through history. There's back to what I was saying with like high schoolers before, there is like this need, this desire to take the way that we live today and the way that we feel, the way we interact with each other and thrust it back into history and time when the conversation we're having now would be impossible for people to have a thousand years ago, not just because of the computer, but just like the, the words we use and the way that we express ourselves and the concepts that we're talking about. Yeah. Democracy, capitalism, these things simply, simply were not there. These social relations, exactly, which arise from a certain mode of economic production, which we're going to talk about a little later. But all right. So, so to jump into it, then historical materialism, man, what? This was Marx attempting to understand history, but through underlying structures, right? And he used dialectics, right? Could you could you kind of give a primer on that, Marx's sort of method of understanding history? Sure. Um, I, there are people out there, and, and I'm not one of them, but there are people who um, subscribe to the, to the hard version of historical materialism, which is to say that uh, the motor of history is only class structure. We know. Right? <laughs> we, we, we know, yo, trust me, you do not hope, though. I ain't going to say no days, but yeah. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about, yeah, though. We won't um, historical materialism, which is a method, right? It's not a thing, but it's a way of understanding the world that, you know, Marx discovered and began and has been continued you know, for 150 years since then, is not, it shouldn't even be seen as like more right or more wrong than other sort of historical disciplines. Because like I said, you can learn a lot by reading a, uh, a biography of Abraham Lincoln. You can learn yeah. a lot about the Civil War. But what you can't get at in that instance is really why the Civil War happened. Mm. Not just because the South was upset that Lincoln became president, but what, were, what was the real division between two different types of capital accumulation, one in the North that was industrial and urbanizing, and one in the South, which was based on slavery and agriculture. The, the conflict was between both of these systems living inside one government, right? Inside yeah. of one state and that exploding. And when it, it's a question of, it's not just a question of emphasis. It's getting down to the deepest level of abstraction where Lincoln's still there, but he ceases to exist as the driver of history. Hmm. When we get to it, when we get to um, history at that point, then we're able to not just compare the past to today and see what we're facing. We're also able to see 
the forms of domination and exploitation that exist uh, within those societies, the kind of uh, class relationships that existed between people, between capitalists and workers or uh, serfs and lords or whatever. Slaves and masters. Slaves and masters Mm. that cause these conflicts to arise, not coincidentally, but necessarily Mm. within a conflictual society, within a class society. These conflicts like the Civil War are not accidental. In fact, they arise from these deep structures. And it's obviously probably good of us to, to understand those contradictions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I want to, I want to get to that with, cause I, I want to mention to people too, that I'm re I'm kind of using the basis of, uh, for what we're talking about on this book by Kieran Allen called Marx and, uh, the alternative to capitalism, which was a book that I found in my community college library when I was first interested in Marxist ideas, right? Like I still considered myself a democratic socialist, like, you know, I was for Bernie, I'm wearing a Bernie shirt now for those of y'all that can't see. Right. But <laughs> But um, I was I'm wearing a uh, trash future. I know, yo, I know. Shout out to trash future, yo, future friends (laughs) of the pod, indeed, man. But uh, I'm using this book, and I think that this part that I want to go over with you when it comes to methodology is is really important. And this book is integral to that. I'll put it in the show notes. But the 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 kind of four, I guess, pillars of historical materialism, and I kind of want you to like bounce off and explain these a little more in depth. The first one is. that things or events do not occur in isolation, but are part of a web of interconnected relationships constituting a totality, right? Could, could you explain that idea a little bit of like not looking at these things in isolation, but looking at them as a larger part of something much greater, right? We, in capital, right? I got to go back to capital now. I've um, never Marx, read it. In <laughs> Marx tries to understand capitalist society. Mm. Um, through what he calls the laws of motion, right? Which is working on a level of of abstraction, abstracting away all sorts of like surface phenomena that exist to get to the very essence and the structure of of how a capitalist society behaves. It's only by getting there to the the most generalized level about conflict between classes and uh, the imperatives of human life, you know, which, and and the sociality of human beings and the way that that expresses itself that we can really... I think ultimately see the forms that uh, that human activity takes and how and, and how they uh, how they change over time. Essentially, it's all about the change over time, right? History isn't about things that happen. It's understanding how the past became the past, how we were brought to the present. If that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense, right? It also like highlights like a, a second point brought up is that like everything is impermanent, right? Like I'm thinking of a quote from. Um, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, right? And she says that, um, you know, people once thought that the divine right of like kings, right, would last forever, but it didn't, you know? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, capitalism as, as it exists now is what, like a couple hundred years old? Yeah, right? two, three, four hundred, yeah. depending on how you measure it. Yeah. So this again, like, kind of goes back to this idea that, like, refuting the idea that conservatives tend to have that things and human nature is like fixed in time, right? And like what what makes them not fixed in time too is uh, you brought this word up before contradictions mm. right talk talk a little bit about the concept of contradiction in a Marxist lens. Well, you mentioned the word totality before, mm. right? Yeah. So if you want to understand a society, say capitalist society, as a totality, you need to see how um, different people in different times enter into very definite and historically specific social relationships with one another. Uh, especially with capitalism, you're talking about a small group of people who own the uh, means of production, the private property, that useful productive stuff that helps to make other stuff on the one hand, and the vast mass of humanity who, because they don't own anything, have to work, have to sell their labor power to that small group of people in order to have enough to eat and survive. Mm. There's no contradiction of capitalist society through capitalist history that's more fundamental than this one which dictates how the, what, eight, nine billion people alive on this earth uh, live, whether they're a capitalist or whether they're a worker, right? Or even how bizarre and strange that social arrangement for making a surplus is in the course of history. Out of this totality of capitalist society, out of those laws of motion, you have two classes of social actors whose interests are in contradiction with one another, Mm. but at the same time, and importantly, under this social system can't survive without each, without each other. Mm. So this conflict, 
you know, between the small group that has a lot and the large group of us who has very, very little is not, uh, it's not contingent. It's not accidental. It is structural to that system itself. It is part of the totality. So the totality itself brings out these tensions and conflicts and contradictions within it because it's a conflictual uh, social formation. Exactly, right. It, you know, and like I used to work in a kitchen. I used to work in restaurants, right? And uh, I was- I was more of a front of house guy. You were more of a front of house, yeah. Not to lord it over you or nothing. I know there's a lot of tension between the front and back. Yo, there was, honestly, <laughs> I just put on my headphones and washed dishes. And I don't give a fuck, man. I was like- Oh, that sounds that, awesome. It was awesome. <laughs> well, I used to listen to Antipoda, actually. That's actually what I Oh, beautiful. And meanwhile, I was out there talking to yuppie assholes and trying to upsell them on cocktails. <laughs> oh, I did a lot of that when I was organizing for the Democratic Party. So I, I, like, <laughs> I feel that struggle. But, uh, you know, I would like, I try to like spit theory to my my comrades, you know, even if they weren't Marxists, right? I call my coworkers my comrades. And I would try to sort of, from a, as, from a canvasser, that's what I used to do before that. I would try to explain Marx, basic Marxist concepts, but just, you know, people will hear me say this all the time, man, meeting people where they're at. And one of the most effective ways of exposing the contradictions or revealing them to working people who already feel them every day, right, is asking people, like, if they feel like they deserve what they make. And mm. working in the kitchen, uh, I was a dishwasher and one of my coworkers worked the grill. And one day I asked him, I was like, yo, how much are those pancakes that you're making, right? Mm. He was like, oh, I don't know. We looked at the menu. It was like $7, right? I was like, how many pancakes do you make an hour like on a Sunday morning when we're like, it's like brunch and we're packed. He was like, shit, yo. He's like, damn, I make like more than 30. And I was like, all right, dude, like, you know. You do the math. <laughs> you do the math, right? And that's like highlighting theft of like surplus value, right? Yep. You know, and I think that just basic contradiction of when you leave your job during the day and you feel like you got ripped off, it's something that is bubbling and boiling and constantly happening, right? Even if people aren't consciously aware of it, right? It leads to stress in their lives, right? Sometimes it can lead to like, you know, worse things, right? So um, yeah, man, I'm, ha I'm happy that like you kind of highlighted like the, the engine of all of this, right? Which is, you know, this, this, these contradictions, right? But there's one more thing, too, that I, I kind of wanted you to help me understand this as well, because I'll try. I think it's one of the yo, you, you've been helping me a lot, yo, because this is a learning right. experience for me, too. So I appreciate it. But um, this one's a bit more heady for me, man. Um, another tenet, I guess, of historical materialism is uh, certain features which occur at a lower stage in history may reappear in a more developed form at a higher stage. What, what does that mean? Oh, that's that's good. Um, I that's that's some advanced theory right there. Uh, I think like you're doing all the reading for me by explaining it to <laughs> should be doing. So I appreciate it. Oh, I'm happy to do it, man. I'm unemployed now, so I got all the time in the world. Yeah, man. Um, I love this shit. <laughs> so yeah, like one example of that, I, I guess I'll, I'll start with an example is um, under feudalism, the mm. uh, last mode of production, as it were, uh, the way that production was regulated was through the medieval guild system. So you would have basically a closed uh, like a monopoly on the production of a particular good in a particular area by a bunch of, again, self-regulated artisans who would decide how much it was going to cost, of course, under what conditions was it going to be produced. And, but importantly, how many other coopers or whatever artisan it is, is going to be inside the guild and doing that. So it, it was, they were regulating this internal productive economy. Mm. One of the things that you get this from capital, and this was the real history of it, one of the things you start to see in the late Middle Ages is that that guild system started to break down, that the masters who would have journeymen and apprentices underneath them were starting to become capitalists. They were starting to break from that guild system. Mm -hmm. And instead of having other workers who they brought up and eventually became masters as well like them, they simply had workers. Mm. You know, they, they became capitalists. And then there's the whole part where the merchants come in and start to interfere start to ask of the guilds that there'd be more like productive work techniques, mm -hmm. demand certain prices or whatever. So the guild and the degradation of the guild is this historical process we can see coming out of feudalism and into capitalism. But, and this gets to, to, to your question, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that the remnants of that feudal guild system are gone. Because mm -hmm. if you hear what, I, what the artisan system was made out of, 
masters, journeymen, and apprentices. Mm -hmm. This is the same thing that exists in my work in the building trades today. You you are a master electrician. You have a journeyman working under you, and they are training apprentices who come up and they work all together on one job. So the class Um, relations are still intact despite like the changing mode of production. Yeah, okay. they're, They're taking the form that collective production took three, four, 500 years ago. And it's updated to a new capitalist reality where you are still a craftsperson. You still have a lot of skills. You're able to dictate in many cases, the conditions of your labor, but you no longer control the market yourself. You're no longer deciding what to produce and when it's the capitalist market. That's ultimately dictating the labor market for that. So like these, the, the, this old medieval guild system transforms, if you're a skilled worker under capitalism, into a system that's under attack right now, which is craft labor, mm-hmm. right? But the fact that it's even around in the first place nowadays means that there was something about that way of producing under feudalism that translated over into our mode of production and exists on a different higher level today. Yeah, yeah, man. It, it just makes me think like the term wage slavery and especially like as a black person, right? I think like non-commies would hear me say that and they would be like shocked, you know? And Du Bois, by the way, makes a, a, a great distinction between chattel slavery, right? And wage slavery or so-called free labor in black reconstruction, but essentially, when you go into your, if you're working like an hour, you work a wage, right? You go into your job, you don't have any democracy in the workplace. Like you don't have any say over like, you know, how much you make, how much you produce. The You might think you can negotiate with your boss about wages, but you try that shit and see how that should work out. Oh, you know? yeah. Be on your ass in a minute. <laughs> oh, yeah, Even dude. in good times, you'll be out on your ass in a minute. Nowadays, forget about it. Exactly, right? So you just have to like accept whatever wage it is to like, you know, cover your like your necessary labor, your your substance, right? Just like what you can what you can do to get to work, get some food for body for your family, like so you can do it all over again, right? I want to touch on on one thing that you Please. reminded me because you said that only a commie would understand when you talked about wage slavery what that meant. Mm. If you went back in the United States to the 1830s, 1840s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, the idea of wage slavery was so commonplace among working class activists and just workers in general in the United States at that time that everybody would know what you're talking about. Mm. And that's because the the language and the guise that this conflict takes changes over time to where when we use the term wage slavery, it sounds like aberrant, like you're downplaying chattel slavery in the United States, when it's actually, we're, we're picking it up out of history, a thing that was very commonplace back in this guild system we were talking about, which is that people shouldn't have to slave away at a wage for their entire lives. They should be able to become a, a master, master craftsperson and have the freedom of like entrepreneurship. Yeah. Right? Yo, that's a, that's actually a great segue, man, into talking about um the relations of production and uh, the concept of base and superstructure. Sure. Right? And I just want to read a quote um, from Engels. Uh, this was in a letter where Marx and him were asked to clarify what they meant by historical materialism. Um, Engels writes, political, uh, judicial, philosophical, religious, literary, artistic, etc. development is based on economic development. But all of these react upon one another and also upon the economic basis. It is not that the economic position is the cause solely active while everything else is only passive effect. There is rather interaction on the basis of economic necessity, which ultimately always asserts itself. So let's let's dissect that a little bit, right? Because yeah. I, th- I think that, again, you know, going back to the, the sort of nothing ever changes, right? Like people think that human nature and culture is is fixed and it is isolated and the economic mode of production that is running parallel, right, with culture, uh, this culture to people is it's just isolated, it's atomized, right? Talk, talk about the the relations of production and base and superstructure a little bit. Sure, yeah. Um, I mentioned um, I mentioned the mode of production, right? Uh, the relation of production is the uh, is that arrangement I talked about before with a, a few people who own the means of production and a great mass who owns nothing mm-hmm. and has to work for other people. And it also refers to under capitalism. And this is an important part I think that some people miss mm. about uh, the lessons that you get from historical materialism. 
arts is the increasing socialization of production. Mm. So at the same time, as we become more and more individuated as those old structures, the guild structures break down, we become more and more individual in our selling of our labor power and the consequences for not selling our labor power as it's no longer like a village to help prop us up. As this happens, at the same time, more and more more and more the production of things is spread across society in, in such a vast way that it connects all of us, mm. that this chain of production connects all people together, whether we're making it, distributing it, transporting it, selling it, or buying, right? Mm. We're all part of this, this dense social network of capitalist production, but we don't realize that we're such an integral part to that because we only see the objects that we buy as separate, as, as simply appearing in the market, yeah. as something we just choose and buy, not seeing those commodities themselves as part of this intricate whole that we ourselves socially are part of at the same time. Mm. Basin superstructure, I don't, I don't dwell too much on basin superstructure mm. stuff. I've, I'm, I'm not, uh, not my biggest thing, but I, I think basically it gets back to what I was talking about with the laws of motion before of capitalism. When you were talking to the coworker and you were telling him like, oh, how many pancakes did you make? How much, you know, how much do they make for it, right? Mm -hmm. that, that goes to show that in his situation, in your situation, in our situation, there's certain things that are um, so basic, so, given, so taken for granted that we don't even question them normally mm -hmm. day to day. Mm -hmm. And those tend to be what's called economic things. And this is the hardest thing. I think when you're, when you're critiquing or you're on the level of superstructure of culture and yeah. politics and that sort, people can understand that things change because they know that there's a difference between how music was today uh, compared to how it was, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. But that economic shit, as Marx used to call it, yeah. Yeah. Shit, <laughs> is, 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 is not only over-determining for um, society, but it's also over-determined so much of what our individual lives is about. Mm. Because I can choose to engage or not engage in a particular cultural activity, but you or I couldn't go out and choose not to engage in wage labor. Yeah. We couldn't go out and, and refuse, say, oh, well, yeah, I, I don't accept that uh, my boss can, can, can boss me, so I'm going to talk back to him at work. You'll be, you'll be on your ass in a minute. Yeah, you know? yeah. And these when multiplied by 9 billion people are the sort of constraints that exist on human activity uh, in a micro sense. that when you get up to the, to the macro sense of all of society and recent history, you're talking about an inhuman system where people are not free yeah. for all the talk of freedom that we're, you know, we discuss in, the, in America, what that means, liberty or whatever. Um, there's a radical unfreedom at the center of that, at the base of society. There is a radical unfreedom. Say what you want about um, whether you want markets after capitalism or you want like to abolish the value form or whatever. The point is, is that in a, on a day to day basis, things are fucked. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, people realize that and they recognize that that base constrains our activity as people. Yeah, man. That's 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 like I think what we should understand. Right. Is that like these systems of production, they restrain they constrain like the realization of ideals right like like people cannot imagine it's almost like another book you know i'll shout out to people maybe you can come back and talk about this is um yeah. mark fisher's um capitalist realism right mm -hmm. it's like he says that he uses the movie uh children of men another one of my like favorite apocalyptic like dystopian films yeah, right it's a, good one. it's a really good one man and and he says in it in the very beginning he says that even though it's like you know, this world in which like the human race is doomed because like women can't procreate. There is this uh, seller of like, you know, I guess fine arts, right. Mm. That have been, um, I guess, uh, taken from museums and whatnot in the societal collapse. And even then Mark Fisher says like referencing that scene is that it's easier to imagine, imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Right. Um, and I'm pretty sure as well, right. Like my ancestors, right. Could never imagine Right. That they would be free, let alone the country would be governed by like a black dude, you know, what I mean? <laughs> as trash as he was. Right. Like just that that possibility did not exist within that mode of production and, you know, thus those social relations. Right. And, and when you talk about freedom, right, which is one of these uh, abstract ideals we keep getting back to. Right. This this overriding compulsion for uh, to take freedom seriously in the United States, even the freedom that we do have. 
that that slaves didn't have, but eventually, you know, they want it is a distorted freedom. It's a perverted freedom because on the one hand, you are free to go work for whoever you want, right? You're free to go on the labor market and sell your labor to whatever boss will hire you or whatever. Mm. But you're also free from the means of subsistence that necessary in order to live a life of, um, of, of freedom that isn't dominated by a capitalist, by a boss. Exactly. Right. So there's a double freedom there. And those, those freedoms are in contradiction with one another, right? Yeah. You're free to work wherever you want, but you're also free to starve. Yeah. Like that doesn't get much more basic than that. It's coercion, right? Right. You're- it's a subtle coercion. This is why we need to demystify this shit mm-hmm. because just this amorphous idea of freedom, people will buy into it. Yeah, well, I can vote for who I want. I can buy an Apple as opposed to an Android or whatever it is. When at the base, that right there down at the base, there's a lack of freedom, an anti-freedom that exists yeah. underneath. Yeah, I like that anti-freedom and unfreedom. Yoga. I think those are the perfect ways to describe it, right? Because again, like if you don't go to work, like you have the freedom to starve. You have the freedom to be homeless. You know what I mean? Yeah. You have the freedom to suffer is what it is. Yeah. yeah. And, as, uh, and, and, and that gets to so much of the heart of uh, what's rotten right now in the United States in the era of COVID, uh, in the era of a breakdown of political legitimacy, mm. uh, and also in the midst of an ecological crisis. I like to call this the triple crisis, <laughs> yeah. social, economic and political, right? In, in the middle of this, of this crisis is that when people try to understand what freedom is, they understand it as freedom for individual juridical citizens, right? There's that amazing quote from uh, Anatole France is the law in its majestic equality forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges, to beg in the streets and to steal bread. Mm. You know, this is the freedom that the market gives you, right? Everybody is free and equal under the law and the rich illegal for the rich to sleep under a bridge as well. Nothing is more, more American. Nothing is more like Western capitalist than these conceptions of freedom, which without a base underneath of uh, economic freedom, uh, mean nothing especially in a crisis exactly right and, and the thing is too is that like these modes of production they exert pressure on like legal and like political structures like uh contract law right property rights for example that like protect and capital and its accumulation right these are just like under the law like i guess like irrelevant of status or rank or anything like the law is universal but because of the mode of production, the capitalist mode of production, right? If you don't have like, you know, the economic freedom to accumulate capital and be a capitalist, you don't have political freedom, right? Oh yeah. Who's going to yeah. sign a fucking contract with me, man? I don't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, we don't fucking need it. You know what I mean? Let's build something new, man. But no, seriously. And, and then meanwhile, we're on the street. Yeah, right. The, the law is fascinating, mm-hmm. right? Because it's another one of these mystifications of uh, the market and of society um, that the laws are impartial that, uh, you know, the, the capitalist bourgeois state merely sets the terms and makes sure nobody cheats on one another with these contracts. But you can see, especially in the last 30, 40 years, that the way that the capital accumulates is based on what's allowed under the law. Mm. And what's allowed under the law is dictated by what allows capital to, commu- to, to accumulate, right? So all the laws about, um, uh, about finance, for example, right? When capitalism last reached a serious wall, and we're at it again, which is in the 1970s with the crisis, there needed to be a new set of international rules and regulations for the accumulation uh, and, and the spread, the financialization of capital. And so bit by bit, uh, through the 1970s and into the 80s, you saw the laws change in the United States and across the world to open up the world to capital, to globalize that capital. Mm-hmm. Not because some capitalist had an idea somewhere like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to go send a bunch of jobs to China? It was because it was necessary at that point for capitalism to continue to financialize and to spread across the globe. And so the, the laws eventually came by the 90s to reflect that necessity yeah right and it's like it's like a a positive feedback loop right right because like the the economic mode of production is acting upon like these political and legal like institutions but then the political and legal institutions are entrenching the mode of production and acting upon it as well right yeah yeah yeah. yeah. and 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 the most pernicious part of it i think this gets back down to why historical materialism is important is because all of this happens to us day in and day out uh, in an invisible fashion. Mm. 
because we never question like a like a fish doesn't know what water is right yeah. it's just like moving around in the world yeah. and if you if you tried to explain to it what water was it, it just wouldn't make any sense because it's all around them it's the same with us and the sort of the ideology uh, or at least like the ways of thinking the, the epistemology of capitalism mm. makes a lot of these very important structures in society invisible to us because we think that's just how it's always been and that's how it's always going to be and it's only at like a rupture point at a crisis point that all of a sudden people can the veil can fall from people's eyes and they can say wait 200,000 people dying of of covid when they didn't have to 30 million people being evicted mm. this is normal this is the way things have to be mm. No, you know, and, and it's, it's part of our job to show people how under the surface of normalcy in uh, capitalist society, things have always been fucked up. It's just more people are feeling it now. Yo, you, you, the, you did a perfect fucking segue, man. Like, I like uh, this, yo. That's, that's what comes from doing like 200 podcast episodes. Yeah. It's like magically can segue in your brain. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, all right, man, let's, let's, let's end off then on, um, I, I was mentioned earlier that, I was fascinated with apocalyptic dystopian and like literature films uh, because I, I recognized through that medium that the seeds of destruction, right, were already like embedded within reality itself, but also like renewal, right? Right. And um, I'm going to read another quote from Marx. I promise this is not going to be a show where I'm just going to be reading quotes from dead. I love it, man. I'm like a fish in water when you do this shit. I love it. But it's, it's like, who, who can say it best, right? Um, <laughs> this is Marx when he's explaining what follows as the class relations reach a breaking point, as you were just discussing, right? He says, at a certain stage of development, the material productive forces of society come into conflict with the existing relations of production, or this merely expresses the same thing in legal terms with property relations within the framework on which they have operated hitherto. From forms of development of the productive forces, these relations turn into fetters. Then begins an era of social revolution. The changes in the economic foundation lead sooner or later to the transformation of the whole immense superstructure. Like, I guess then, this is the way I've taken it, right? Is that the only way out is through, right? Mm -hmm. And it's through kind of solidarity talk, talk about like i guess the this is kind of like the culmination of marxist ideas right that the, the the class relations will reach such a point that they'll break right and and who's going to come through through that you know explain that a little bit uh there's a i don't have a quote in front of me but in um in capital volume three marx talks about capital becoming a barrier to itself mm. right which is to say that this moving churning social relationship that exists in order to, in a very uh, inhuman or even a human way, just produce value that valorizes itself, this internal and infertile machine of, of capital, right, eventually reaches the point where everything that is it's built is, is, is abhorrent to it, mm. that this whole human society built on those foundations has to crumble and something new has to arise, which is a very abstract way of talking about, you're talking about uh, relations of production. It's, 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 it's a way of talking about the crisis that we're in right now yeah which is that you've got hundreds of millions already before the crisis hundreds of millions of people who are redundant to the system right that capital could not use mm. not because they're bad but because they're unlucky mm. and because they were not necessary in order for value to self-valorize to become more value to make profits right mm. these people have already been thrown out of this productive apparatus sometimes for generations now and are just surplus they just live outside of it they live on rags mm. they're in the informal black markets right mm. they're uh, squatters uh, in South in South America or in Africa, living outside big cities, eking out an existence, and more and more so, there are people in the suburbs of the United States who are either outside the labor force or who are only marginally attached to labor. Right? Mm. This is the inner tendency of capital to um, to, to for just call it productivity, to become more and more productive, to use more and more automation and more and more machines to have to make more value, but ultimately expelling human labor from that workforce. So a way to look at it would be, imagine the two, three billion people, maybe more than that, who are being unused right now. Mm -hmm. I'm using that in scare quotes. Mm -hmm. because 
I think it's a kind of a gross way of, of thinking about people, yeah. but they're not being utilized within the productive nexus of human relationships now because capital doesn't need them. Mm. As more and more people are outside of that, you have to think, what could that four, what could that four billion people be contributing right now? Mm to a more just society that didn't have irrational rules that meant that half the people couldn't get fucking jobs, mm. right? This capital has become a barrier to itself and the social revolution that Marx ultimately calls for or, or says will be arising, I think is um, it better come soon, man. I mean, we're reaching some capital, certainly reaching some ecological limits at this point. And um, yeah, we, we better start moving on. Man, that's why like I named this uh, this pod a time of monsters, right? Um, it's that Gramsci quote that like it's a it's a rough translation, but um, you know, the old world is dying and the new one struggles to be born. Right now is the time of monsters. And it's been maddening to try to figure out like what the fuck is going on and how we got here, and like also to try to like, because you and I are like, you know, online in this kind of like space, like trying to kind of pierce through the irony and the like nihilism right and to try to find like a way out that involves like real solidarity and you know i'm gonna you know have a later episode on this part of the 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 struggle i guess in the united states is having interracial class solidarity right and um you know like we were talking about history earlier i just want to bring this up to mention this is like as a black radical like just as an example of like how our history as working people is like lost to us as a black radical, like I still have to like dig deep, man. Thank God I have the resources. I know where I can look now. But like when I was just starting out, dude, I didn't have any money to buy books online. You know, like I didn't know where to find PDFs. I didn't know libcom.org was a thing, you know? So I went to my like, you know, school library and I was just like looking for books on like Malcolm X, right. On Marcus Garvey, my family's from Jamaica. And finding that history was so hard. It's like, very to us, right? It's like we have no idea that it even exists. Yeah, um, I mean that's part of I. I think I'm. A, I think I'm allowed to be proud of uh, some of the work that I've done, and certainly the work that you're doing now, and that a lot of people on the broader left are doing, which is to popularize something which, as you said, has been very difficult. It, it's been it's been hidden away in the in the cloisters of libraries and universities. You could, you know get a $40,000 a year education from a university and learn some of these things, right? But more and more now, things that seem abstract, right? Historical materialism, things that seem like, like how could that possibly affect me? I think people are starting to recognize that it is affecting them, that this social world, this totality is deeply affecting them. It's in crisis right now. And I think the project of popular history alongside the project of popular theory, along, of course, the practice of popular organizing mm. is the only way that we ever get anything yeah, right? yeah. because, because Lord knows if, if we're reaching that limit, if we're going to be in the, the uh, city of men moment, mm. if, if uh, this triple crisis continues as it is, we damn better be, be ready. Right? Yeah. We better know what happened in the past so we can intervene in the present. Otherwise um, the same mystified forces that ensure that we don't know our own history, whether that's a black American, whether that's a white worker in Albania, whatever it is, right? Uh, they, they, they love it. They love to make sure you don't know what your history is. They love to be, to, to be sure that you don't know what solidarity is. They love it when black and white workers are fighting about this, that, or the other thing, because it's great, yeah. right? It's great for them. And it's, and, it's, and it's all part and parcel of this process of mystification that history is very guilty of popular history in the United States that we need to break from, that we need to have our own organs. We need to have our own institutions. We need to organize ourselves as a class. Exactly. Right. And that's the thing, right? Is the ruling class recognizes themselves as a class, right? With common interests and goals that they orient themselves towards. Right. But we don't. And um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm just like thankful that like I'm able to do this project and have people like yourself on to kind of like, teach people this history. I don't want to say teach, but to kind of help people, guide people through this history. Well, I said in the beginning, when you, when you're talking about being well-read or whatever, I'm serious. Like I, I didn't, I, I didn't have the brain to like sit down and read capital by myself. So I got together with like six, seven, eight, nine other people. And every week in somebody's apartment with like beer and wine and crackers yeah. and sit around a table and we would read capital out loud to each other and learning collectively like that i think 
helps to square this circle of alienation and mystification. Because if you have the ability, I know we're in COVID right now, so it could be a Zoom call or whatever. Mm. But like if we have the ability to to learn collectively, uh, to learn as a group, then uh, hopefully someday soon we'll have the the ability to act collectively. Exactly, exactly. And one thing I do want to mention, man, is that there's a, there's a big difference between writing and, you know, talking about socialism and doing socialism, mm-hmm. right? And I think a big part of that is kind of having this sort of analysis and understanding of history, man. And um, before we head out, man, before you plug your stuff, I just want to read one quote, one more quote from Marx. I feel like we're talking about history Please. appropriate. More and more and more. <laughs> yo, today was just White Claws and Marx, man. I tweeted <laughs> that shit out. Yo, that shit was not a joke. Yeah. Yo, just like the Capital Reading Group, we should have a show where we just read Capital out loud. Oh, dude, right. like I haven't even like that shit sitting on my night table right now. <laughs> I've like it's been sitting in there for months because usually I try to get up and read a book. So if a book is on my night table, I'm gonna read it. But I've been avoiding that shit, man. It's, it's tough. Man. It is. That's tough. why we do it together. Uh, this quote, man, from Marx, uh, just to take us out, man, is uh, men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. I think that's, that's it. it, man. I think that that's a tight quote, if, if you want, if you want to know what uh, the basic thesis of historical materialism, it is that. It is that. It's about specific uh, social action and human activity being conditioned by, not completely by, right, but being conditioned by historical factors that we can only try to break out of, but we have to see them first. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we got to do it together, man. That's right. Yo, what, like, man, Sean, that was fucking tight, dude. You, you held, man. Thanks. <laughs> no, yo, uh, plug, plug some shit, man. Right. I know people know you, but plug some shit, please. Yeah. Um, if people want to check out my, Work, my ramblings they can go on twitter.com uh i am at uh as underscore a underscore worker which is a really trolly <laughs> name i came up with that really makes some people mad but i think it's great yeah, i love it <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then uh other than that you can check out my podcast the antifada uh with my co-host jamie and our producer ap andy and we do a weekly show with bonus episodes. I do some side projects with Matt from Chapo. And we have great people like Aaron on every week to talk about the exact same sort of things we just talked about today. It's good. It's good fun. Hell yeah, yo. And I just want to say again, man, please go check out the Antifada. Like that was one of the more formative, um, you know, uh, podcasts that I listened to that shaped the way that I view the world. And Again, man, I really appreciate you coming on, Sean. That ass. Only Aaron could see me blush when he said that. <laughs> Only I could, yo. Yo, Sean, thank you so much, brother. Thank you, Aaron. Oh, it's yeah. been a pleasure, man. Anytime. Hell yeah.